As we open the pages of the New Testament, one comforting thought is that the problems of the church have already been faced in some form by the church in the first century. Jude, the half-brother of Jesus, diagnosed the infectious lack of moral standards among the believers of his day and presented the cure. Our Truth Encounter study leader, Dave Wurtson, wrestles with the crisis of ethics in the church. If you took a group of so-called born-again believers, for example, a group just like this, and then you took a group of unbelievers, who do you think should live a more moral life? Should believers live more moral lives than unbelievers? If you were to take a group across the United States of evangelical believers, would you expect to find less immorality among the evangelical believers than you would find in the general population? Well, the obvious answer to those questions that we would all say, oh yes, I would expect that the born-again believers would live much more exemplary lives. They should be more committed to God's standards. And yet, though the Gallup polls that have been taken in recent years report that the number of people that say they're born again into God's family has increased radically. In fact, uh, Newsweek said that there are something like 40 million believers, people that say, yes, I believe that Jesus is the Messiah, I believe he's my Savior, people that will make that kind of a commitment. There are well over 40 million people who will make that kind of commitment. But when they ask these same people some further questions, some unbelievable things began to surface, like very few of them could name even four or five of the Ten Commandments. They couldn't even name four or five of the Ten Commandments. As I've been traveling in the last few weeks, I talked to one pastor after another, and they're brokenhearted. Why are they brokenhearted? They're brokenhearted over the immorality in the church. You see, we have a lot of people talking about the pagans out there. There's an amazing thing. The New Testament almost assumes that the unbeliever out there will live in the flesh and act in the flesh and they will live in immorality. And so we have a lot of people that are getting real upset about the sin that's out there and we should. But what I'm really concerned about and what I think we as a church family need to be concerned about is not the sin out there. It's the sin in here. It's the immorality that can be very much a part of our own church family. And that's what the book of Jude is concerned about. The book of Jude is dealing with the question, should so-called born-again believers live a more moral life than the unbelievers? It's an age-old question. Should the fact that Christ has come into the life produce some kind of an ethical, moral change that you can really tell the difference? Now, some of us might say, well, Dave, who cares? It's really not that important. I mean, doesn't Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 say, what does it say? For by grace are you saved through faith, and that what? Not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. I mean, after all, didn't the Apostle Paul teach that we're saved by grace, totally as a free gift? What difference does it make the way that we live our lives? 
I mean, we're saved just as a gift from God. In fact, God's grace has been multiplied by our sin. You see, the more that we sin, the more God can forgive us. And the more that God's forgiveness brings glory to Himself. You see, Dave, the, God, the doctrine of grace teaches that we have the liberty to do anything we want to do, right? Well, that was one of the major errors that Paul had to refute concerning the doctrine of grace, which is so much a part of the Bible. The Bible does teach, for by grace are you saved through faith. And that's one of the most gracious, one of the most precious messages that every one of us ought to cling to. In fact, if you look at Jude chapter 1, we're going to pick it up with verse 3, we'll find out that Jude is running to a group of believers, people like yourself, and last week we learned that these precious believers had been called by God the Father, they were loved by God the Father, they were being kept by God the Father for God the Son, and then verse 3 says, Beloved, the NIV translates it, Dear Friends, but it uses a word that reminds us of what he told us in verse 1, that we're loved by the Father. So I want to begin this morning by explaining to all of you that we're talking to a group of people who are beloved by the Father. That's what we stressed last week. We're talking to a church family where the majority of the people within that church family are the loved ones of God. In fact, we should refer to one another as the loved ones. How many of you ever speak about your family? I'm going to go and see my loved ones, my family. Well, we should speak about one another. If someone says, well, where are you going to go this Sunday? You're going to say, well, I'm going to go and visit in the morning with my loved ones. Now, what makes us loved ones of one another? Because God the Father has commended His love toward us in that when we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so we become the loved ones by responding to God's gift of salvation to us. Now Jude starts talking about this salvation. He took his pen out and he began to write, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt I had to write to you and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. Now here's the case. How many of you have ever started to write a letter, but you never got around to writing the letter? Anybody have that trouble? Anybody have trouble writing letters at all? Okay. How many of you have ever started a letter where you started the letter and you were going to write about something else, but you got a telephone call right in the middle of writing the letter and you just had to change the whole subject because a crisis had come up, so you wrote a totally different kind of a letter? Well, that's the kind of a thing that's going on with Jude. Now the very first thing I want you to observe carefully, look at it in verse 3 is that Jude is writing to a group of people who have a very precious treasure. He says, You have had committed to you or entrusted to you the faith. Now, there are some words here that are all refer to the same thing. Salvation, the faith, that which has been entrusted to you refers to all the same thing. What is it? The very first thing I want us as a church family to realize that we have been entrusted by God with a very, very precious message. What is it? You know, there's a lot of people in the world that are concerned about nuclear fire. In fact, I believe it was in a survey, it mentioned that about 30% of the Americans felt that the nuclear holocaust 
a danger of a nuclear holocaust is one of the greatest dangers facing the United States. If you were a European, if we were speaking to a European church, many of the Europeans in those churches would be very concerned. I just talked to a friend that's a missionary in Germany saying that in Europe there's a tremendous concern about the threat of nuclear war. Now, what I want to share with you is the danger of nuclear fire from a biblical standpoint isn't nearly as dangerous as the danger of hellfire. Now, I'm not, you know, I don't, wouldn't put myself in the category of being a hellfire and damnation preacher, but I want you to realize that we need to take very seriously what the Bible teaches. And what Jude is talking about is the danger of hellfire. And every single individual on the earth is living imminently in danger of hellfire. If the siren goes off this afternoon and the person in the car that's an adult is blasted into eternity or crushed into eternity or cut into eternity by a terrible wreck, then instantaneously it's possible, according to the Word of God, if they've never believed in Christ, then they're in hellfire. Now, I didn't make that up. And some Baptist preacher didn't make it up either. Even you might think that, but he didn't. The Bible talks a great deal about that. We just read it about not putting a stumbling block because there's a danger of hellfire. Jude is very concerned about the precious gift of salvation that we've received. What makes this gift so precious? If I told you, I'm going to give you a message which will make everyone safe that will believe in it from nuclear fire. I'm going to teach you this Sunday a message which if you share it and if people respond to it, they won't have to worry about a nuclear holocaust. How many of you would think, boy, I've really got something? Boy, you would. I mean, we'd put it on Channel 8 and Channel 4 and Channel 5. We'd be trumping, hey, we found the answer. The world, the answer to the nuclear holocaust. Judas saying that this group of believers joined with believers all over the world, has received a deposit, a gift. It's like God has put the message in the bank, and we're the bank. And what is that message? It's how people can be saved. It's how every single one of you living in this room can know for sure that one day when you stand before Jesus as the righteous, holy judge, that Jesus will look at you and say, not guilty, under the blood, forgiven by my death on Calvary, my child by a gift of grace. Now, I want you just to stop and think about that. If you know Christ is your Savior, if you have responded and received into your life the person of Christ, and you're trusting in the fact that he died in your place on the cross of Calvary, you believe from the depths of your heart that Christ rose again from the dead, then as you sit there today, you don't need to be afraid of the judgment of God. And that's a very precious deposit. And Jude is telling us that once and for all, you've been entrusted with that message. Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3, just to look at the way the Apostle Paul talked about this. 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14. 1 Timothy 3, verse 14. Although I hope to come to you soon, I am writing you these instructions so 
that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, in God's family. Now, what is God's household? What is his family? Which is the church, the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Beyond all question, the mystery of godliness is great. He appeared, the Lord Jesus appeared in the body, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was proclaimed among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up into glory. What is the Scripture telling us? You, as born-again believers, are the temple of God, and God has chosen to entrust to you this message of salvation. And that message of salvation is sitting in many of your laps. It's found in this precious book. The Word of God, the Bible that's sitting in your lap, is the only book in all the world that can give man absolute certainty that they're safe. They don't need to be afraid. They're delivered from divine judgment. Now, one of the great tragedies of our world is very few people are concerned about divine judgment. Most people, you know, just really don't care that much about divine judgment. But the book of Jude would warn us to say that needs to be a big concern. Divine judgment is a big problem, much bigger than the nuclear fire and much more imminent in the lives of many people that we meet. And so Jude is telling us as believers, God, once for all, once for all time, has entrusted to the saints, those who have believed in the Son, this precious gift of salvation. Do you cherish that? I want every one of you to make a commitment this morning. You know, it's very possible that 20 years from now, someone could be teaching where I'm teaching, and you could be hearing a different message. And some of you will be so asleep, some of you will have wandered, become so dull, you won't do a thing about it. There are believers sitting in churches all over the United States where the gospel used to be proclaimed, where people used to talk about the danger of hell, where people used to talk about the deliverance that came from Christ, but they're not talking like that way anymore. They're talking about living a good life. They're talking about being a good force in the community. They're talking about being nice to people and, and doing all kinds of things that are very good. But it's not the gospel. And yet good, solid people will sit there and do nothing. And that's tragic. What I want you to know is every one of you in this room have received a precious gift if you're a believer. And you need to be willing to give your life for preserving that gospel message. You see, we can move into a brand new facility. We can even have lots and lots and lots of people come. But if all those people that come don't hear the gospel, if we don't bring them to a family of believers that really treasures salvation, then it's all of the devil. It'll be horrible. It'll be putting people into darkness instead of bringing them to the light. And that's why Jude changed his mind. He said, I wanted to write to you a letter about salvation. He said, I was thinking of writing you a letter like the book of Romans, like Paul did in the book of Romans, but I had to change my mind. Why? Because there was an infiltration. There were some people that snuck into the church. And what did these people teach? Well, look at it. These false teachers in verse 4, he explains what they taught. For certain men whose condemnation was written about long ago, 
have secretly slipped in among you. They are godless men who change the grace of our God into a license for immorality and they deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. Now let's look at the error that these false teachers were propagating. First of all, Jude's label for them is that they are ungodly. They are irreverent. They have no respect for God. They have no respect for God. You know, a lot of times, I think one of the questions we have to ask ourselves is, you know, like, why is swearing wrong? Because it'll illustrate what it means to be ungodly, irreverent. Why is swearing wrong? In other words, out there in the unbelieving world, why do people talk about Jesus Christ? You can just go to almost any movie. It can be G-rated. And they'll say, Jesus Christ. Not in reverence, but just as a flippant remark. Oh, you know what? Why do people say, damn, hell? What's wrong with that? What's wrong with, oh, damn? Why don't you say that? Because you realize how tragic it's going to be that people will be damned? Do you realize that that's the most awful word that could ever be used in the English language? Can you imagine someone that was made in the image of God, that was meant to live eternally in relationship with God, and yet because of rebellion, they've been lost eternally, and they are damned, they are separated from God, they will never be able to experience His love, they will be an H-E-L-L? That's why we don't use those words lightly. Because it's flippant, it's disregarded, it's disregarding all that's precious and meaningful. That's why we don't take the name of the Lord Jesus in vain. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Kings and kingdoms, they all pass away. But there's something about that name. These false teachers, these false teachers are ungodly. You see, they don't think it's that important what you think about God and the way you talk about God. What else don't they believe? Secondly, they don't believe that you need to live a moral life. They hold, because they've changed the grace of God into a license for immorality, that because we're saved by grace, you can live any way you want to live. And I want to share with you, there are two major errors that you're going to be tempted to get involved in in your Christian life. Two big L's. There's two big L's that at one time or another in your life will try to suck you into false teaching. Number one... It's the big L that was dealt with in the book of Galatians that we studied several years ago together. It's the word legalism. It's the L of legalism. What is legalism? Legalism is the belief that by being obedient to moral standards, by being obedient to external rules and regulations, you can make yourself acceptable to God. Legalism is the belief that by obeying external moral standards, that you can earn favor with God. You can become acceptable to God by your own self-righteousness. That's what legalism is. The book of Galatians is God's New Testament absolute negation of that legalistic doctrine. Now, a lot of people escape from legalism. They say, I now realize I'm saved by grace as a free gift of God. They many times fall into the second L which is just as serious, and that's the idea. I'm saved by grace. doesn't make any difference what I do. I can live immorally. I can do anything I want to do because I'm saved. 
And Paul talks about that at the end of the book of Galatians. He says, don't use your freedom as a license, as an indulgence for the flesh. And Jude is focusing in very carefully on this concept that grace does not mean a license to sin. And that's what these godless teachers, these teachers had slipped into the church, and we need to watch out. False teaching does not usually come into the church from the outside. These are godless men who change the grace of our God into a license for sensual immoral living. And by doing so, they deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. What Jude is telling us is, is that if we as so-called believers go out and live in immorality, what we are doing is totally disregarding the Lordship of Christ. You see, somebody will say, well, what's wrong? You know, what's wrong with, with just living for my body? What's wrong with just, you know, being immoral? After all, I'm saved, aren't I? Everybody does it. Young people will say, listen, everybody at school does it. It's the normal thing to get involved. I just read an article that said much more than 50% of the girls under 20 in the United States have already had sexual relationships outside of marriage. The abortion problem that we're all concerned about, we're all so upset about abortion, the root problem of abortion is immorality. It's underneath. It's the problem of unwed pregnancy. That's the real problem that's undergirding it all. Abortion is a form of birth control. That's the problem. And what the Scripture is telling us here is that if we as believers get involved in that, the issue that's really wrong with it is that we have turned away from the Lordship of Christ. We're saying, Christ, I don't care about your standards. I don't care about what you think about things. I don't care that you had to die in order that I could have life. I'm just going to live any way I feel like. That's what Jude is so concerned about. You see, if we have really been born again into God's family, God's grace powerfully works in our life to free us from sin, not to cause us to indulge in sin. Grace is never a license to do whatever we feel like. Grace is a freedom to enable us to live according to the Lordship of Christ. Now, why is this so serious? Because those who are involved in immorality are very much in danger of eternal damnation. Look what it says in the next verses, verse 5. Though you already know all this, Jude assumed that his people that he was running to knew all about the Old Testament examples that he was going to make. He says, though you already know all this, I want to remind you that the Lord delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their own home, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They served as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. And what's Jude talking about? He uses three Old Testament examples. The first one is from Numbers chapter 14. Turn your Bibles back to Numbers chapter 14. Now, Numbers chapter 14 is talking about a very specific group of people. Who are they? 
Numbers chapter 14 is talking about what the kids have learned about in our Sunday school, about the deliverance from the land of Egypt. How, what special people could there be but the people that are delivered from the land of Egypt? These are the people that were slaves in Egypt. The Lord brought Moses down and Moses said, let my people go. The Red Sea parted, which is the greatest deliverance in the Old Testament. The Lord brought the children of Israel two million strong through the Red Sea, brought them around the bend down to Mount Sinai. God gave them his moral commandments at Mount Sinai. Then he brought them up north through the wilderness and he brought them right to the edge of the promised land. In Numbers chapter 14, they're right at the edge of the promised land. They send 12 spies into the land. Those of you that went through the walkthrough, remember this. They send 12 spies into the land. Ten came back and said, we can't do it. There's giants in the land. We just can't do it. Joshua and Caleb said, yes, we can. The Lord is with us. The Lord delivered us from Egypt. The Lord has preserved us in the wilderness. The Lord has put the fear of God upon the nations. We can take it. But the ten said no. And the multitude of the Israelites, all the adults, from 20 years old and up, all the adults said, we can't do it. And look what the text says. In verse 26, the Lord said to Moses, How long will this wicked community grumble against me? I have heard the complaints of these grumbling Israelites. So tell them, As surely as I live, declares the Lord, I will do to you the very things I heard you say. In this desert your bodies will fall. Every one of you 20 years old or more who has counted the census, who has been counted in the census and who has grumbled against me, not one of you will enter the land. I swore with an uplifted hand to make your home except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. As for your children that you said would be taken as plunder, I will bring them in to enjoy the land you have rejected. But you and your bodies will fall in this desert. Your children will be shepherds here for 40 years, suffering for your unfaithfulness, until the last of your bodies lies in the desert. For 40 years, one year for each of the 40 days you explore the land, you will suffer for your sins and know what it's like to have me against you. I, the Lord, have spoken, and I will surely do these things to this whole wicked community which has banded together against me. They will meet their end in this desert, and here they will die. The Lord says that because of the unbelief of the children of Israel, that an entire generation of Israelites fell in the wilderness. You know, when we gather together on Sunday morning, I want all of you to realize that we worship the kindest, the most gracious, the most forgiving. If you have been someone that's gotten involved in immorality like we've been talking about today, but like David of old, you came back. And you said, oh, Lord Jesus, forgive me for that. I want to be forgiven. Maybe you're a teenager that had problems in that area and you slipped into sin. You say, Dave, are you telling me that I'm going to be lost eternally? No, I'm not. I'm saying that you can come back to the Lord Jesus and you cling to that cross and you look at Jesus right in the eye and you say, Jesus, the immorality that I did is awful in your sight. It's so bad that you had to give your life and that was the only way that it could be cleansed. 
and you look at Jesus figuratively right in the eye and you say, Jesus is my Savior. I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? And Jesus says, yes, I will. That's not the kind of a person that fell in the wilderness. The kind of a person that God rejected in the wilderness was someone who just disregarded the work of God. They would be somebody in our midst that would come Sunday after Sunday and say, who cares? God doesn't mean anything to me. I'm into other things. I'm into living for myself. I'm into living to have a good time. Sure, I commit immorality. I'm saved by grace. I've become a child of God. I'm going to get to heaven. I believed in my heart with my parents when I was a little kid. I know I'm safe. And so I live any of the way I want to live. Jude is warning that kind of a person in our group. And what Jude is telling us is that there were millions of people that were delivered from Egypt. They were supposedly the people of God. But the book of Numbers chapter 14 says they were unbelievers. The book of Jude tells us those who had not believed. If you turn back to Jude, we learn something unbelievable about these that fell in the wilderness. It says those who did not believe, and it's a past tense, it's saying these group, this group of people that fell in the wilderness never really had committed themselves personally to the reality of God. And that's why they fell. They never had truly been born again. So what is Jude telling us? Is Jude telling us that we get saved by our good works? Is Jude telling us that you can look at your life and if you're moral, if you're doing good things, then that earns your salvation? No, Jude is not saying that. What Jude is saying is this. If you really have been saved by grace, that's the most powerful new life you could ever receive. If you genuinely have believed in Christ, then Jesus Christ came to live in your life, and Jesus Christ within your life causes you to proclaim his, Him as Lord and as your Master. You want Him to be your, be your Lord, and you want to be His servant. And so if you're tempted to immorality, the Holy Spirit within you says, No! It's a repudiation of everything you are. You can't live like that. If you're a born-again believer, we're going to learn later on in the book of Jude, if you go out on a Saturday night and you go clubbing in North Dallas, wherever it might be, over in Arlington, and you start milling around with unbelievers, and they start pairing off. That's what they do on Saturday nights and Sunday nights, before the big, you know, to get ready for work on Monday. When they start pairing up with people that don't belong to them, and don't sit there so piously, because kids in our church get involved in this kind of thing, and you go out there as an unbeliever and you start getting drunk and you start living in immorality, if you're genuinely a believer, it will destroy you. Your whole life will start to come unraveled. You'll be miserable. Somebody inside of you will be yelling, you're in the wrong place. You're doing the wrong thing. This is not what you are. And you might fight and scramble and try to get away. But if you've really been born of God's grace, you've got a powerful Holy Spirit that'll yank you back. But if any of our young people, any of you adults, are living in immorality this morning, and it doesn't faze you at all, you say, Dave, you're just too old-fashioned. I can do what I want to do. I'm going to live my life my own way. Then Jude is warning you. It is fearful to fall into the hands of of an angry God. Because as Midlothian Bible Church, we do not worship the granddaddy in the sky. 
that always gives lollipops when you come to church on Sunday morning. We worship the most awesome, the most mighty, the most holy king that you could ever meet. And it is a fearsome thing to not believe, to not respond. And so if you're sitting here and you're complacent about morality, you know I'm deeply concerned about the evangelical church in America. The unbelieving world is not hearing our message many times because they don't see any change. And it comes from false teachers in the church that are teaching that God's grace is a license for sin. Let me close with this illustration. I know of a pastor who became so much involved in this false teaching that he actually had convinced five, six, seven women in his church that in order to release him from the pressure of the ministry, they needed to have sexual relationships with him. The husbands knew what he was involved in. The husbands knew that a pastor teacher was having immoral relationships with, his, with their wives. And they accepted it. They said, it's a godly thing. It's a holy thing. It's a relief for the man of God. That happened in this modern society. And that's what Jude was talking about. And that's the kind of false teaching which God says destroyed the children of Israel in the wilderness. We should be fearful. We should be very much concerned that the Lord protect our church family. Because don't think that that's just out there. It could happen here. We need to pray for every one of our leaders. Jude, the apostle, Jude, the brother of the Lord, is looking at all of us. And he's saying that immorality is an idolatrous, immoral religion that will deceive you. It will pull you into its clutches. It will cause you to pervert the gospel of God's grace. It can cause a church family to lose that opportunity to proclaim the only message of salvation which can bring life. The book of Jude is a heavy message. The angels in Genesis chapter 6 were seduced into sexual immorality. We're going to talk about Sodom and Gomorrah. An entire group of five cities was seduced into sexual immorality. The false teachers of Jude's day, we're going to learn about, about cursing angels, mocking angels, talking lightly about spiritual authorities that are much mightier than ours. In Genesis chapter 6 and Genesis chapter 19, and then in a portion of literature that's in rabbinic literature that most of us have not really had an opportunity to study that much, a story about Michael the archangel wrestling for the body of Moses and not slandering angelic powers. Some of these kinds of false teachings, I've mentioned just one of them, the teacher who lives an immoral life and justifies it based upon a misconception of God's grace. The error that I've tried to expose you to you today is the error of making grace a license for sin. God's grace gives us the freedom not to sin. For more information on materials available through Truth Encounter, please write to us at Truth Encounter, Box 580, Midlothian, Texas, 76065, or you can contact us on the web at www.truthencounter.com.